So this afternoon, I want to um, explore some about how metta develops, uh, what the process is of practicing metta. And there is an account of the development of metta, uh, which I'll read first, which gives a very short account. And this is, this is it. This is a dialogue between uh, a customer um, talking to someone who does uh, tech support for computers. Okay. Customer, I really need some help. After much consideration, I've di- decided to install Meta. Can you guide me through the process? Tech support. Yes, I can help you. Are you ready to proceed? Customer. Well, I'm not very technical, but I think I'm ready to install it now. What do I do? Tech support. The first step is to open your heart. Have you located your heart? (laughs) Customer. Yes, I have but there are several other programs running right now. (laughs) Is it okay to install while they are running? Tech support. What programs are running? Customer. Let's see. I have pasthurt.exe, lowesteem.exe, grudge.exe, and resentment. Doxy.exe, all of them running now. Tech support, no problem. (laughs) Meta will gradually erase pasthurt.exe from your current operating system. It may remain in your permanent memory, but it will no longer disrupt other programs. Meta will eventually overwrite lowesteam.exe with a module of its own called high esteem exe. However, you have to completely turn off grudge.exe and resentment.exe. Those programs prevent Meta from being properly installed. Can you turn them off? Customer, I don't know how to turn them off. (laughs) Can you tell me how? Tech support, my pleasure. Go to your start menu and invoke (laughs) forgiveness.exe. Do this as many times as necessary until it's erased the programs you don't want. Customer, okay, now Meta has started installing itself automatically. Is that normal? Tech support, yes. You should receive a message that says it will stay installed for the life of your heart. Do you see that message? Customer, yes I do. Is it completely installed? Tech support, yes. But remember that you have only the base program. (laughs) You need to begin connecting to other hearts in order to get the upgrade. (laughs) Customer, oops, I have an error message already. What should I do? Tech support, what does the message say? Customer, it says error 4.1.12, program not run on internal components. What does that mean? 
tech support, don't worry, that's a common problem. It means that the Meta program is set up to run on external hearts, but has not yet been run on your heart. It is one of those complicated programming things, but in non-technical terms it means you have to meta your own machine before you can meta others. <laughs> Customer, so what should I do? Tech support, can you pull down the directory called self-acceptance? Customer, yes, I have it. Tech support, excellent. You're getting good at this. Now click on the following files and then copy them to the my heart directory. Forgive self dot doc, realize worth dot txt, acknowledge limitations dot doc, and work through implicit bias dot txt. <laughs> the system will override any conflicting files and begin patching any faulty programming. Also, you need to delete selfcriticism.exe from all directories and then empty your recycle bin afterwards to make sure it is completely gone and never comes back. <laughs> Customer, got it. Hey, my heart is filling up with new files. Smile.mp3 <laughs> is playing on my monitor right now and it shows that peace.exe and contentment.exe are copying themselves all over my heart. Is this normal? Tech support. Sometimes, for others, it takes a while, but eventually everything gets downloaded at the proper time. So Meta is installed and running. You should be able to handle it from here. Okay, so rather than give a talk, I think I'll just stop there and... <laughs> um, so that, that points at some aspects. I'll, I'll use some other language to talk about other uh, ways that the whole uh, process of, of Meta develops. You know, and this is to connect really with what um, Sylvia has really been saying uh, quite a number of times, which is that the, um, the essence of Meta is simple and it's really at the heart of our practice. And it's about learning how to have our being be responsive rather than reactive. And that's it. For me, that's a, a simple way of talking about the heart of the practice, being responsive rather than reactive. And responsive is a simple word, but it actually uh, goes a long way. It really suggests uh, freedom, and it suggests wisdom, and it suggests the kind heart. But that's a way to, to talk about what we're, uh, what we're doing. And so a lot, a lot of the practice of working with metta is seeing what stands in the way of being responsive rather than, rather than reactive. the guidance from the Metta Sutta, and we'll be, we'll be looking at the Metta Sutta as a group in the next few days. These lines again, which we've heard before, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings radiating kindness over the entire world. 2,600 years ago. 
offered as a path of development, a way of, a way of being. There's some other, other expressions of this. Uh, um, Mark Twain once said, kindness is the language the blind can see and the deaf can hear. And I also think of a close friend of mine who put on her message machine, be kinder to yourself than you think you need to be. Basically, leave your message and be kinder to yourself than you think that you need to be. Just every day, that everyday aspect of metta, maybe the metta of concern for um, one of our retreatants who was injured, right? And to, you know, that responsiveness that I know many of you were feeling and that people were, were acting on. And again, the, the, the word metta again, again, has been translated as loving kindness, but as Heather said, it really um, etymologically is related to words meaning friendliness. And it's this um, sense of warmth, goodwill, basic friendliness. And I, I, was, I was reminded by um, one of our co-teachers, Anushka Fernandapula, who, who observed that in most cultures, other than our own maybe last 50 or 100 years, friendship was actually at the center of culture. And we have the sense that romantic love is at the center of culture. But that's different than it's often, often been. That a sense of friendliness has often been very, very central. And we find this sense of kindness and this aspiration to universal kindness, I think, in, I think we find it in different ways, I would say, in all spiritual traditions. But it was interesting to look for some expressions in other traditions as well. So in the Jewish tradition, in the Talmud, it said, the highest form of wisdom is kindness. The highest form of wisdom is kindness. And there's a line from the uh, uh, mystical Kabbalistic text called the Zohar, which goes like this. It first quotes the Psalms, the world shall be built on love. And then it says, by this the world endures. The world endures by, by love. We know probably many of us from the uh, Christian Bible, the saying of Jesus, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does, does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. We could almost use the word metta and it would be very, very close. Yeah. And this is from uh, the 20th century uh, Catholic uh, contemplative, uh, Thomas Merton. Our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they are worthy. <laughs> that is not our business. And in fact, it is nobody's business when what we are asked to do is to love and this love itself will render both ourselves and our neighbors worthy. And then a last passage, this is from the uh, sayings of the uh, prophet Muhammad. This is from one of the um, 
texts called the Hadith, which is like uh, reports of, of Muhammad, not actually the Quran, but uh, um, reports. And this is, this is uh, reporting his words. He said, you will not enter paradise unless you believe, and you will not believe unless you love each other. Should I direct you to something that if you constantly did, you would love each other? And he answers this question, spread the greetings of peace among you. And so our, our practice of metta, again, is a practice of really coming from our wisdom of inclining towards that kind heart. And we incline again with our phrases. And we, in a sense, um, say the phrases, or if you're working in some other way, we, we uh, bring forth that intention for metta to be there. And then we let whatever occurs occur. And sometimes we incline towards metta and we get that growl that Sylvia mentioned. May you be free of harm. <laughs> you know, before we say, you know, especially when we get to some of the other beings like the neutral or the difficult person. May you be full, um, full of happiness once you shape up. <laughs> yeah. And so forth. So we know that. So it's really important that the essence of the practice is really an intent. This is true of all of the heart practices that we'll be working with. The compassion, forgiveness, joy, equanimity, they're all inclining. They're in a sense guided by our wisdom. We're inclining in a certain direction. And I like to use, as I mentioned, I think yesterday, I like to use the, the uh, almost like the slogan that metta is an intention practice, not a production practice. We're not sitting here saying, I, Donald, will now produce metta. You can feel the strain in that, right? It's really more of an invitation. And that, that, that is some of the allowing for it to be there. And also, whatever is not part of that orange juice concentrate shows up. <laughs> you know, whatever is not part of the metta, what stands in the way of metta, um, shows up. And so there's this way again that, as has been mentioned, I think a few times, metta is one of the members of the family of the heart practices that, again, we'll be exploring, the ones I mentioned. And there's a way that it really, in its maturity, needs all the others, that the, all the heart practices, in a sense, contribute something to the awakened heart. And so, again, we, I think we may get in, I think I'll mention a little bit later, there's a very beautiful and subtle teaching about how there are, for each of the heart practices, sort of occupational hazards. And they're, in a way, uh, remedied by some of the other practices. You know, so the occupational hazard of metta, of bringing out the kindness, may be a certain attachment or possessiveness, right? That can be there, especially with people close to us. And we can modify that sometimes by especially the equanimity dimension and the sense of the wisdom of impermanence and so forth. There's a beautiful line from the 14th century Tibetan teacher, Long Chenpa, who says, who talks about these different qualities of the heart and their relation and says, out of the soil 
of metta grows the beautiful bloom of compassion to be watered by tears of joy under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity. That's what we're doing. Gardening. (laughs) Being arborists and so forth. And so ultimately the reason that metta works, and this is the claim from the tradition and from our sages and deep practitioners, is that metta is part of our deep being. And so in a way, we, we say, often say that metta is like the sun that's always shining, but it gets covered by clouds. And so in the, in the old text, there's, a, a, there's a, a, a way to describe metta as the brightly shining quality of the mind and heart. And it's always there, and it's even there in people who do very unskillful actions. It's taken to be in all beings, this brightly shining quality of mind and heart. And yet there, there are a lot of challenges to metta. And I, for the rest of my talk, I want to really identify some of the core challenges and point to some of the ways that these get worked out. And so we've talked about the challenges at different times, the way that metta gets rote, the way difficult emotions come up, the way we have trouble maybe locating our heart, as in that story in the beginning, um, restlessness, sleepiness, what haven't I mentioned? <laughs> Self-judgment, difficult emotions, different forms of reactivity, thinking that we made a grave mistake to come to a one-week meta retreat, <laughs> you know, which can be connected with maybe doubt, doubt in ourselves, doubt in, you know, Maybe I'll arouse love. Maybe it's better for me to arouse love by a lot of dancing. This meta, I don't know. So all sorts of things. So we'll, we'll, we'll look into those. And I'll try to group them according to uh, a few different qualities that we develop. So I want to talk first about how part of metta uh, helps us to uh, develop more subtleness of mind, more concentration. And this particularly works with uh, tendencies to distraction, sleepiness, and restlessness. That we can really work to, uh, as we practice with metta, we settle the mind and heart and body. You know, and I think the, the yoga can may have a, a really a major role in settling the body, calming the body. You know, often when I work with people, and, and people uh, quite often have really active minds, and actually um, sitting meditation is not the best first step. Often it's to do a body practice uh, that works in, in a kind of calming, particularly if it works with the whole system, with the energetic system, like some, like uh, many dimensions of yoga, qigong, and so forth. And so um, when we... De- we, when we develop in samadhi, and, and concentration is not a great translation of samadhi, as many of you know. It really, it kind of the connotation of concentration is this kind of somewhat tense efforting and striving to really focus, right? Do you have that? I think that's in the culture. Whereas the actual um, way that deepening in samadhi works is a lot by ease and relaxation. It's by you know, this combination that we've talked about in the hall, especially last night, 
of combining a kind of active efforting at times with something very relaxed and receptive. It's a way that we can really work with, with, um, with samadhi. And so we, as we practice, we're really repeating these phrases. And again, there's this very fascinating way that the, <clears throat> the uh, mind that's engaged with phrases, in part, uh, crowds out the mind that is distracted. Do you notice that? After a while, it actually doesn't work so well because what happens is that the metaphrases go to a semi-subconscious level of mind and the distracted mind continues. (laughs) It's interesting, right? Because there are actually two general levels of samadhi practice. One can work more with the surface kinds of thoughts and the other level works with the sort of the, the background thoughts. And so there are these, there's these progressive ways of, of deepening um, in samadhi. But there's something very uh, uh, beautiful about this coming together of attention. I used that uh, line, uh, I think last night, about from uh, Kierkegaard, that purity, purity of heart is to will one thing. And there's this way that the, the settled mind and heart and the, the ability to open to metta does require non-distraction. There's a line from a Russian Orthodox teacher of the 19th century named uh, Brother Theophane who had a line, dispersal of attention diminishes warmth. Dispersal of attention diminishes diminishes warmth. And so, you know, this core part of our practice is to keep coming back, to keep um, coming back when we're distracted, keep coming back. And there's a kind of, um, there's a kind of art form uh, for doing that. Um, I'm going to mention just a few suggestions for having that uh, increase in ease as we develop more subtleness and, and more samadhi. And so we want as much as possible to keep coming back in a relaxed way. I think, we, I think Sylvia had a way of talking about this, uh, kind of related, maybe related to Barry, that tranquil alertness, you know, of the, the slogan of the uh, town of Barry, Massachusetts. I think it was from the Revolutionary War, if I remember right. <laughs> from, and we could also think that the, the core of this uh, coming back, we could use other language. We could talk about combining persistence and relaxation. And again, like tranquil alertness, in our conditioning, these are often not together. And so we can work with this. We can use words like that as the intention at the beginning of a session. Say, let me combine persistence and ease, or persistence and relaxation. And we want, we want to have that sense of knowing our own balance. Do I need more of a kind of active effort, or do I need more of a receptive effort? Ultimately, we need both. The active effort is the one that says the phrases, that notices we're distracted, that comes back. That's crucial, of course. We need that. But we also need something that brings in more of the relaxation. We can call more 
receptive effort. That can be, as we were saying last night, some of the qualities of just being able to be with whatever comes up. Having a receptivity, not being too tense around the phrases or about the results. It can be uh, sometimes there we say the phrase and we let the pause be there for a while and we just relax. We're just receptive. Even curiosity, what will turn up? I've said this phrase, you know, what will, what will occur? And we can ask ourselves, in my own practice of metta, am I a little bit more on the over-efforting side, the straining side, the striving side, or am I a little, a little too much laid back? Which is called for? And maybe that varies even during the day. So that's a great question to ask right at the beginning of a, of a session. What, uh, what might I emphasize now? You know, the, the more receptive effort or the more, or the more active effort. It's also helpful, especially when we're doing something like the same thing, hour after hour after hour. How many of you who are on your first retreat knew that this is what you were signing up for? <laughs> How many of you had no idea? <laughs> right. And so, you know, um, there's some things that are helpful for just staying with it. One of them can be to really uh, invoke a sense of mystery. There's something mysterious about this practice, you know, and it can sometimes help even to say at the beginning of a session, let me rest in this mystery of how the heart opens. That could be really helpful for somebody. It's been really helpful for me. Let me just rest in the mystery. I'll do my practice, but there's a mysterious aspect. And maybe you've already seen that there's something really mysterious, like you're really sleepy and cloudy, and 15 minutes later, the metta is really strong. How many of you have seen those kind of, kind of mysterious shifts, right? So to know that is really, really helpful. It occurs, it occurs like that, you know? And, um, you know, people can find that suddenly, you know, one's with some reactivity and all of a sudden there's, there's a sense of kindness. Something opens up. Sometimes we have to, this is another uh, point of guidance in terms of settling. Sometimes we need to actually have some discipline with repetitive thoughts. And one thing that I don't think has been out in the hall that's something that's been important to me is if you have something, how many of you have something unresolved in your life that your mind is going to a lot? (laughs) Okay. Okay. This is, (laughs) could be the definition of the mind, right? (laughs) Go to, you know, it's like, go to something unresolved and work it out. And so, um, what I found very useful is um, to make an agreement that that dealing with the unresolved issues are important, but I will not spend my whole metta retreat dealing with them. And I will say, the last morning, or maybe right after breakfast, when I'm pretty clear, not yet thinking much about anything else, let me attend to that unresolved issue. I suggest that. And see if that resonates with you. And that frees you up to really stay with the metta and you can tell your mind, we're actually dealing with this later, okay? We're actually dealing with this later, okay? We're actually dealing with this later, okay? 
Because we can, we can tell ourselves that, and that can, be, that can be helpful. And sometimes, if it keeps repeating, we just need to do it a little bit like training a puppy, just say, not now. Not now. And we can say it with firm friendliness, <laughs> not harshness or, or rejection. And that can, that's actually important. You know, and there, there are other techniques for working with like repetitive thoughts that keep coming up. I know in, when I was doing training in samadhi practice, one of the things I did was I would sometimes, when there were certain repetitive thoughts coming, I would summon tiger energy and, and actually go, so, so use of the growl that's actually positive. You know. So feel free to use that, but keep the growl kind of in, inside. <laughs> okay. Imagine someone's in the residence hall here, and they hear the next room. <laughs> right, and you know, uh, yeah, you get the idea. Try to have the growling be, be silently repeated inside. Okay, good. So, a lot of different ways of working with that, of working with. Those are a few ways to just help us keep coming back. It's really, it's really crucial. There, there's a way that we're also um, training and the metta develops. You know, one way to look at it is that we are learning to really um, bring our hearts first. You know, one phrase I like is that we're learning to lead with our hearts. And it's something that we can bring into all, all, all moments of our lives. You know, it's, it's uh, again, something I learned from Sylvia was that we could say that meta practice is just asking, how is my heart right now? Where is my heart right now? It's a way of continually leading with the kind heart. We're doing our best for that. And again, it's a, um, it's a training for many of us. Many of us did not learn in our upbringing and maybe in our social conditioning uh, to lead with the kind heart. You know, I think my conditioning was to learn, to, was to lead with the analytical problem-solving mind. You know, that could actually do good problem-solving, but it was, and I think, you know, my, my natural tendency, I think, was to have a really good heart. You know, I knew that by my fact of sometimes crying during driving, driver ed movies. When I was a, a teenager, true confession. <laughs> You know, so I knew there was something there, but it, you know, the you know, conditioning as a young man, it's, when I was growing up, there wasn't that much room. We, we, there wasn't, let's say, a stress on empathy and compassion. Yeah. And um, at, least, at least for me, even, even though my parents were very loving and compassionate, but um, you got the idea. So. Um, and so there's a way that we have to have patience with it. Many of us are working with maybe similar conditioning, and we have to really have patience to, to keep on learning to lead better. And we work through, you know, we work through various forms of our conditioning. Uh, and, you know, that really points to a whole area of our meta practice that's really crucial, which is that we, we encounter that which stands in the way of metta. You know, we encounter the reactivity, the wanting, the not wanting, the difficult emotions, the self-judgment. There are a lot of things. Some of, it, some of them were mentioned in that, uh, 
um, what meta computer story at the beginning, right? That um, there are all these uh, qualities or or dimensions of conditioning which come up, and so we often talk about meta practice as a purification practice, you know, in the sense in the sense that we are in a way moving towards what we might call the pure. And if you don't like the word pure, if it doesn't resonate with you, you can, you can use another term. Um, but there's a way that we incline towards the kind heart, the beautiful heart, the compassion, the forgiveness. And, in, and we also see what stands in the way of that. You know, see what stands in the way, you know, according to the metaphor, it'd be the impurities or that which, that which, is, that which is in the way. And we, we, see, we see those, and though that's a big part of meta-practice, you know, and we, we find generally that uh, meta-retreats are, uh, I think I mentioned, much more volatile than uh, mindfulness retreats in general, you know, with all sorts of wild dreams. People, ha- how many of you had pretty out-there dreams? You know? And again, don't take them too personally or get too attached to the interpretation. It's, there's a way that uh, you know, it's natural. We're inclining towards kindness and the psyche will throw up what stands in the way during the dreams and here <laughs> as well. And that's, that's natural. And it's not that, oh, this is my nature. I'm really, you know, whatever. Angry, fearful, hateful, whatever. But it can come up at times. <clears throat> Sometimes that manifests at the level of the body. We can find sometimes, I know I sat for hours and hours and hours, probably hundreds of hours, feeling tightness in my heart, manifesting at the body level. And we can feel that sometimes, like a tightness, the heart sometimes wanting to open, or just the way that we have developed, you know, what's sometimes called the body armor. That it can, we can feel that when we practice sometimes. We can feel other places that the body feels tight or constricted. And, you know, and with uh, both attention and sometimes, you know, the using the forms of uh, yoga, qigong, other, other body mo- modalities, we can work with those. We can work with those skillfully. So part of what comes up is material that we're familiar with. Some of it is more beneath the surface, you know, that when we sit in metta, we may have uh, grief that wasn't fully touched from six months ago or one year ago or 20 years ago. That can come up and we can work with it. We've talked, uh, we've talked, um, again, last night we talked about ways of working with uh, emotions of anger or sadness or grief or fear uh, come up and they stay for a while, it's not like we want to banish them and get back to the phrases, but we give room when they come up and the energy is there. And a general guideline that we often give is that we stay with the metta. When something comes up and it just stays for a short time, we don't so much give a label to it and so forth as we might with the method of mindfulness. We just notice it, we come back to the metaphrases. When something lasts for some time, whatever that is, if two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, 
then we could actually, something like sadness or grief, then we could actually, in a way, move to uh, mindfulness practice, to be with it, whatever sometimes other practices we might do, but to really give some room for those emotions when they come up. And they can, they can, they can be there, any of those emotions I mentioned. Um, old voices, you know. Sometimes uh, voices that come that could be judgmental, self-critical, judgmental of self, judgmental of others. I wanted to say a little bit about this quality of um, self-judgment because it really is so, it's so central in our culture. Um, I was present um, on the Dalai Lama's first trip to the United States. Uh, in 1979, I was at the Insight Meditation Society uh, living there for about six or seven months. And the Dalai Lama came. It was his first time. He wasn't that familiar with Western culture in some ways. And he took questions from people. Someone uh, asked a question. They were on sheets of paper. Asked, you know, I don't think I deserve love. Please comment. And the Dalai Lama you know, got the question, I think, in Tibetan. And he went back and forth with the uh, translator for about three or four minutes. And he was kind of shaking his head. And eventually he went, he spoke in English. And if you've heard him, you know, his English is pretty good. He, he eventually spoke in English and he just blurted out, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Which was, as it were, very un-Dalai Lama-like. <laughs> right? But that's what he said. And he later said that he didn't understand the depths of Western self-judgment and self-hatred. And he spent the next two or three years talking to Western psychologists and meeting with people to know more about that. You know? And then, you know, they have their issues, but it's, they're different, a little different. Right? And so it's a very strong issue for many of us and something really to, uh, to notice. And we can, we can just track you know, how that might be appearing. It might be, oh, I'm not good at metta or I'm not doing metta well. Or it might come up in some... Uh, older way, you know, some sense I'm not okay might be there. And metta can be a wonderful antidote to this. Um, Heather and I have have taught, probably starting about uh, eight or nine years ago, six and seven day retreats uh, that we call transforming the judgmental mind. And so there we have like, there's a whole, you know, six or seven day curriculum, but the starting point for working with the judgmental mind is first mindfulness, noticing it. It's helpful to give a label. If it stays for a while, explore how it is. Remember that guideline that, again, I gave last night, that we want to distinguish when difficult emotions come up. We want to distinguish between when it's in the workable range and we can actually track it and be with it, and when it's overwhelming or too much really crucial distinction that's not always given in practice. And when it's in the overwhelm zone, we basically want to get out of it. You know, we want to basically move out of it. We can do that. You know, one way to do that um, is actually to open the eyes, look around the room, find something that's pleasant. 
and connect with it. That can actually shift the way the brain's working and take us out of a really difficult state. You know, and we can also, um, sometimes we could just go to metta, but that's a crucial distinction. And so, but if it's in the workable range, it can be helpful just to be with the judgment, really notice it, feel what it's like in the body, get familiar with it, see if there's a kind of a message that's there and notice it. And then otherwise, um, the, you know, the other guidance we give is to just do heart practices regularly, do metta, compassion, forgiveness, and so forth. And that's, that's really the starting point for, for that work, you know, and really, really crucial uh, in our times. One of the other ways that metta develops, really develops us, and it can, you can kind of hear it from some of what I've been saying, is that increasingly, I think, as we do metta, there's an integration of the, not only the mindfulness and the, the metta, but I think there's a, more of an integration of body and heart and our wisdom. And so that we're, we're, we're really, in a way, again, for people who are like me, who maybe had wisdom that wasn't so, again, my training, my upbringing, to the extent that I had wisdom, it wasn't so embodied and it wasn't so connected with my heart, right? And some of us have that conditioning, some of us have a kind of opposite conditioning, that the heart can be, uh, be there, but maybe not so much wisdom. And so the long-term development here is towards the integration, the kind of the mature integration of, the, of those uh, dimensions. And there, that could, be, that could be a focus for a whole talk. There's a lot, there's a lot that could be said about, about what that means. And I think that, you know, if I would think of one of the core, what, um, imbalances of our whole culture, it's the lack of the integration of the wisdom and the heart and the body. You know? And not, not even necessarily the wisdom, just the thinking. Thinking disconnected from heart, right? Very common. Thinking disconnected from body, very, very common. And maybe getting worse, you know, with virtual reality and so forth. And so when we're doing that integration, we're actually making a very strong statement with our lives about that integration. It's helpful actually to to know that that's what we're doing. It's a really crucial aspect of it. Again, I'm, I'm being brief here, but I think it's really, really important. And there's a way also in which we're increasingly, as we do metta, developing that wisdom that we might call the wisdom of interconnection, the wisdom of knowing um, how connected we are, how related we are with others, and how much our own well-being is bound up with that of others. And again, that is, again, I think, a, uh, something not seen often in the culture, you know, as there's more self-centeredness. And metta really can work in that way. There's a very uh, ancient uh, text, or I should say one of the uh, texts of the Buddha, uh, the Buddha comes to meet um, several monks who are living together, and 
they've actually been living together for a long time and they've taken on the same name. They're now called the Anarudas. <laughs> the Anuruddha is the uh, elder monk. And so the Buddha comes to them and, and the, the, the monks are actually have their own names, uh, Anuruddha, Nandiya, and Kimbila, but, but they're collectively known as the Anarudas. It kind of sounds like a, you know, a music group or something. And, and so the Buddha comes, he, he approaches them and says, how is it now, you Anarudas, that you are living together as friendly, on friendly terms and harmonious as milk and water, uh, regarding one another with the eye of affection? And then the elder Anuruddha speaks up. He says, we have developed metta in regard to acts of body, speech, and mind. We now have diverse bodies, but only one mind and heart. This has been developed through metta. We no longer prefer our own happiness to that of others. So you can see in a way that the metta practice, and this is what I'll, I'll close with, the metta practice really is something that we increasingly bring out into the world. And we'll be focusing more on this towards the end of the retreat, but it's helpful to keep that perspective. You know, that um, sometimes we can think that this is self-centered, but I don't think it is. I don't think we think it is. It really is something, especially if you have clear motivation, that this is, can be really brought out in your life with others in a way that benefits and that connects you. And so we can really see ways that we might do that. Again, we'll go through a lot of different ways to bring the practice out into the world, uh, to um, be able to express the metta in our daily lives, in our work. Uh, Metta is a wonderful practice uh, for doing in very ordinary circumstances, doing in work, uh, public transportation, I think I'm going to teach, maybe tomorrow night, I'm going to teach a form of metta called radiating metta. Very good for public transportation. It's where you radiate it out from your heart in all directions. So we'll, I think we'll do that. Uh, but metta can really be brought into daily life. And, and many of you probably already do this quite a bit. I know from, from knowing many of you. So, and so it gets brought out with this integration, this, this integration, not, not disintegration. Okay, sorry. <laughs> um, there's this integration, again, of body and heart and mind. And I want to just end with, I think, with just a few uh, passages that, that kind of bring this out. Um, one of them um, comes from the poet Gary Snyder. And he was in a dialogue about impermanence after 9-11. And the, uh, or I think it was right before 9-11, the Taliban had blown up some of the Buddhas in Afghanistan. And a lot of people were um, very sorrowful about that. And someone wrote to him and said, well, what about impermanence? You know, everything just arises and passes away. Why get bothered about a bunch of uh, statues? And he, he um, this person had written to him, Dear Gary, well, yes, the manifest dharma is intrasamsaric and will decay. So I don't know what that means, but that's what he said. 
And Gary Snyder responded, and he's actually going to quote a, hai, a famous haiku from the haiku writer named Isa, who lived in Japan in the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century, and had a, uh, a young son who died. And he wrote, a, he wrote a haiku about him using the words of the Diamond Sutra, which talk about impermanence. Some of you may know this. The, this world is, is but a dewdrop world. You know, the world is like uh, a dewdrop at dawn. It will be there and then leave. And um, Isa had said that this world is like a dewdrop and yet. And so this is what, how Gary Snyder responded. Ah, yes, impermanence, but this is never a reason to let compassion and focus slide or to pass off the sufferings of others because they are merely impermanent beings. The haiku goes, this dewdrop world is but a dewdrop world, and yet. And Snyder adds, and yet is our perennial practice and maybe the root of the Dharma. So maybe I'll, I'll just end with um, a very ordinary way that we can, um, that sort of gives the testimony of the simplicity, ultimately, of metta. You know, we have this elaborate practice, we do it over a week, but ultimately it's very simple. You know, there's, um, uh, I'm thinking, I, I remember, uh, I worked with someone on a one-month retreat. And she was going through a hard time. And she um, developed a practice. And she said that I suggested it, and I thought she had made it up. But the practice was to continually tell oneself, at least a few times, at least five or ten times a day, uh, asking, what is the kind thing to do? What is the kind thing to do? And she would ask that at different times of the day when she wasn't sure what to do or something was coming up. What's the kind thing to do? And it's, it's actually, I think, a beautiful way to kind of have both our phrase, metta, this you know, continual practice, but also sort of to have big picture metta, which is what's the kind thing to do right now? And to really, they're really uh, they go together. So, you know, at certain moments we may be hard on ourselves or we're really tired and we ask ourselves, what's the kind thing to do? And she did that at this retreat quite a number of times a day and then she brought it home and did it at home for the next months. Just continually asking that very simple question. So it's very simple, this practice. So I want to end with, uh, actually with an email that I received from someone who was once uh, one of my students named uh, Tom Potterfield. And Tom was a student of mine and about eight years ago he developed at a pretty young age, you know, like 50, he developed uh, pancreatic cancer, which you know is one of the hard ones. And um, he died about a year after he was diagnosed. And this, this is something that he wrote 
about six months after he was diagnosed. And I want to end with this. This was an email that he wrote to his friends. The past few weeks have been tough. The chemo treatments take a lot of willpower to navigate. In addition to knocking me down physically, they also bring on an emotional and spiritual darkness that drags me to the borderlands, a dry, barren, lonely place of scarred memories, dead tiredness, and frayed hopes. It takes all my strength to grind through it and not give in to the temptation to give up, which gets very strong after five or so days of heavy chemo side effects. My work is always a great help with this by dragging me out of my head to focus on something far more important to me. I am so grateful for that aspect of my life. He actually became, he's at this time, he was the president of the Institute for Transpersonal Psychology near Palo Alto. Some of you may even have met him. Also, I have found that almost every time something wonderful comes along to restore hope. Sometimes it is just Donna's smile, that's his wife Donna's smile, or his daughter Katie's loving presence. Sometimes it's a beautiful vista uh, vista with some happy cows or horses. (laughs) It could be one of my canine buds giving an especially sweet and enthusiastic greeting or a student doing well and having a great experience at the Institute. And sometimes it is something more dramatic and amazing. This past weekend, I had a big problem. I have a pick line, a small tube that is threaded through a vein from my arm across my chest to my heart. It prevents damage to my veins from the chemo infusions. Sounds creepier than it really is. On Sunday evening, the damn thing broke and I had to go to the emergency room. Of course, the specialist in such thing wasn't on duty and I had to wait in the ER till Monday morning. I was pretty miserable. It was yet another reminder of how far from normal my life is, how much this disease has overtaken my life and limited it. I was feeling down and sorry for myself. I felt spiritually dry and I had for some time. I prayed for some lightness and joy to come to me and to feel reconnected to my spiritual life. During the night in the ER, a janitorial staffer came into my room to remove the trash. I said hello and our eyes connected for just a fraction of a second. Jose left the room and came back with two heated blankets and proceeded to tuck me in very gently and carefully. He then told Donna and me about his own struggles and how people praying for him uh, saved his life. We talked about faith and hope, and then he went on his way. A brief and lovely moment that lifted my spirits and made me very thankful. There are amazing people everywhere And sometimes they rise up and give you a hand when you need them most. It is good to try to be a person like that for others. Let's just sit for a moment.
So thank you for your kind attention. We have about 20 minutes of walking practice, and we'll come back for the 5 o'clock sitting. <laughs>